You're listening to Therapy for Your Money, a podcast about all things money and finance for therapy practice owners. If you want to feel confident and in control of your financial life, then you've come to the right spot. I'm your host, Julie Harris. I'm an accountant and the owner of Green Oak Accounting. My firm specializes in working with private practices across the U.S., and my team and I have worked with hundreds of private practice owners. I'm on a mission to share all the best practices I've learned along the way because I want you to have a profitable private practice. Hey everyone, welcome to Therapy for Your Money. Today we are talking about a topic that comes up often as um, as an episode request. We are talking about selling your practice. This episode was inspired by a conversation I had recently with a person who handles development and acquisition at one of the large companies that has been buying a lot of practices around the country. Uh, So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my conversation with them and some of the things that uh, buyers are looking for in a practice. That's not necessarily representative of what all buyers are looking for, But since we've had many clients get unsolicited offers from larger companies, I thought it would be helpful for our listeners to kind of get a glimpse of what that might look like. In this episode, you're definitely going to notice that I'm going to use the words typically, usually, sometimes, a lot. And that's because no two deals are going to be exactly the same. So I'm going to give you some high level parameters, but everything I say may not apply for every single deal. So most of the sales that I have seen have a sale price where a large portion of the money gets paid up front, and then there's typically a retention or retainage amount that gets paid at the end of year one or year two, and sometimes there's an amount for each of those years. That's typically going to depend on how long a buyer wants you to stay in the business, and when that the end of that period comes, there's typically going to be another payout as well. Um, so just as an example, if you get a deal for million with $1 million up front, maybe you're getting another $100,000 in one year. And then they're also sometimes accounting in there another $100,000 salary for the owner to stay on for one year. So that all adds up to 1.2 million, but in reality, it's 1 million at the time of sale, 100,000 in one year. And there is 100,000 as a salary that you may have been paying yourself anyways. So even though it's in the contract and you're getting paid for the work that you're doing, it's not really part of the sale price because you would have gotten that money anyway. So when we talk about the payout after the end of year one, there's typically going to be some conditions there. Um, In most transitions, the owner is going to be required to stay on for a certain period of time that will be in the contract, in the sales contract, so that they can help with the transition. Uh, You usually will have the option of staying beyond that if you want at just a salary, but you certainly don't have to. In most cases, solo practices are typically going to be worth much less than a group practice. After all, it makes sense. If you have a solo practice, you are the one doing all the work. And if you were to leave, there's a good chance that some of your clients, if not all, would leave with you. Uh, That being said, it is possible to get some money for a solo practice. Sometimes the client list is valuable. Sometimes there are already systems in place, a location and name that is recognizable. So it is possible to get some money for a practice, but it's typically not going to be a large amount for a solo practice. So the practices that are most valuable are typically going to be the practices with full-time clinicians that are W-2. That tends to to be the most valuable. That doesn't mean that a buyer won't consider a practice with contractors, but depending on the company that is buying, 
Uh, they may require the contractors to convert to employees. And anytime you're making a change to an employment contract, there may be some attrition. So if you're moving someone from a contractor to an employee, there's a chance that they might leave. And so that might be a problem when it comes to the team retention requirements, uh, meaning that the there's going to be a clause in your contract on the retention of clinicians. I mentioned earlier the payout that typically happens at the end of year one. One of the conditions that's really common for us to see is that the number of clinician has to stay uh, the same or about the same as when the transition initially happened. So it has to stay, if you had 30 clinicians, you have to still have 30 clinicians or maybe 29 clinicians at the end of year one. Um, so I've been told that one of the reasons they put this clause in the contract is to keep the owner engaged during that transition period. If the owner checks out and doesn't care, ultimately clinicians will probably leave. Uh, a lot of the transition is going to require the enthusiasm uh, and work of the owner. But so if the owner is invested in assisting with that transition, it's going to be a much more positive experience for everyone. And it will also make sure that the practice doesn't shrink. So that's ultimately the goal of the buyer. They don't want you to just stop caring and walk away. They want you to be engaged in that transition period so that can go well. Um, and they want to retain their investment. They want that to be worth as much in a year as it was on uh, the day that they took over. If you're selling to a large corporation, they're usually going to be looking for in-network insurance practices uh, so that they can bring them under the umbrella of their contracts. That's often going to be an area where they're going to make some money because they have bigger negotiating power with panels. And so they may have better rates than you have. So what they're going to do is absorb your contracts under, under theirs. The large corporations are typically not looking for private pay practices. Obviously, that doesn't mean that private pay practices are not sellable, uh, but you're much more likely to sell to an individual, whether that's an employee or a competitor or just someone who wants to get into the industry, uh, than a large corporation for a private pay practice. The deal might look a little bit different than one we're talking about in this episode, but ultimately a lot of the same requirements often do apply when we see a private sale as well. So if you're entering negotiations for a sale, they're going to be asking you a lot of questions and for a lot of documentation. So some things that you might want to have handy is some up-to-date books. You want to be able to run reports within your uh, QuickBooks or accounting software to give that to the buyer. They're typically going to ask for two or three years worth of tax returns as well. They're going to want to see a list of the insurance panels that you are on and the rates for each one. They'll also want to see a list of your clinicians and the annual revenue for each clinician because the tenure, the age of the clinicians also does matter here. So at this point, you might be wondering, all right, that all sounds well and good, but what is the dollar amount that I would be offered based on? Uh, and so in most cases, the buyer is looking at a multiple of adjusted EBITDA. Uh, so obviously this is a podcast you're listening in. EBITDA is spelled E-B-I-T-D-A and it stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. So it is one of those long accounting terms. And so there may be an adjustment to that EBITDA based on the owner's salary, if applicable. So it depends on the situation. But most of the time in the context of private practice and a cash basis taxpayer, we're roughly looking at the amount of profit. So if you're looking at income minus expenses equals a profit, that's 
pretty close to what your EBITDA typically is. So the multiplier might go anywhere from one to 10x of the EBITDA. So if you're, um, if your profit is $100,000 a year, a 10x of EBITDA would be $1 million value. So obviously there's a lot of different things that go into that multiplier. When I say one to 10, that's a really, really big gap. Um, and so in a lot of cases, we see offers happen uh, closer to the five to seven. That is probably what's most common. I've seen as high as 15. So there really is a lot of fluctuation here depending on the specifics of the practice. But typically buyers are looking for a profit margin of at least five to 10%. Um, and if you have seen any of the work, if you've been following us for any amount of time, you probably know that I recommend a profit margin of profit plus owner's compensation of 20% for larger group practices, but I'm including owner's compensation in there. So most often in a larger group practice, there's going to be an owner's comp portion and then a profit margin. And both of those things I'm looking for 20%. But um, when you look at the profit margin on your profit and loss statement, that very well, even if you're you're at 20% per my recommendation, your actual profit after owner's pay, it really could be in the five to 10% range. That would not be uncommon. Usually closer to 10% than five though. So obviously if your profit is higher than that, higher than five to 10%, that's even better. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting is that uh, a profit margin of over 25% in a large group practice actually raises a red flag that maybe there are investments that haven't been made, Maybe the owner is carrying too high of a workload. So I thought that was an interesting uh, consideration there. So some of the factors that are going to be considered in deciding where exactly your multiplier lies in the one to 10 multiplier is the scalability of your practice. So are there already systems in place to scale or are the wheels falling off of the bus? They're going to look at risk. So smaller practices tend to have more risk and larger practices have less risk just because in a small practice, if one clinician leaves, that can have a really big effect on income. In a large practice, if one clinician leads, leaves, it's not necessarily the end of the world. Another factor is going to be the growth rate for the last few years. So have you been growing at a steady rate? Has it been pretty flat? Those things will matter when it comes to your multiplier. They're going to look at the tenure and age of the clinicians on your team. Uh, are there a lot of people who are also ready for retirement? If you're retiring, for example, uh, have team members been with you for a long time or has there been a lot of churn in your uh, in your team? Those are all factors to consider. They're going to look obviously at the payer mix and the rates that you're receiving from insurance companies. The higher the rates, the more valuable that is. Um, and they're also looking for diversified clinical risk. So if you have one person who's bringing in 50% of the revenue for the business, that is pretty significant clinical risk. So that would reduce the value of the, of the practice. If you are thinking about selling your practice, my team at Green Oak Accounting does offer valuation services. So for our clients who are thinking of selling, I find that evaluation can be really helpful so that they have a number in mind as they enter negotiations uh, with the potential buyer. Even for practice owners who decide not to sell right now, it's been helpful for them to be able to see what levers they can pull in the business to increase the value over time so that they can sell in a few years down the road for a significant amount more money. 
That's it for today, everyone. See you next week. If you're looking for accounting help, head over to therapyforyourmoney.com accounting to find information about my accounting firm and all of our specialized services just for private practice owners. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Just head over to iTunes, click on ratings and reviews, and give us a quick shout out. We really appreciate it. The information contained in this podcast represents the host and guest's general opinions and should not be construed as personalized accounting and tax advice. Listeners should consider all facts and circumstances before applying this information and seek appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. Any info provided does not constitute accounting, tax, or legal advice.